Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Now, I remember what it's like as a kid to feel like your parents had one thing and ends up doing another, whether our promises are big and life-changing, like wedding vows, or, or smaller, like promising you'll put the dishwasher on before you go to work, they can impact the way that we trust and rely on someone, even for little things, right? When you make a commitment, you can be faithful or unfaithful to that commitment, whether it's an agreement or a contract or a covenant or a promise or anything else like that, you can be faithful or unfaithful to that. As we get stuck back into one Kings today, we're confronted with a sad and disheartening picture of someone being unfaithful to God. And that someone is King Solomon. King Solomon, the unfaithful king. King Solomon who was given more wisdom from God than anyone else had received in history. King Solomon, who was the son of David, who built the first temple for God in Jerusalem. King Solomon, who gave us the inspired words of God in books of the Bible, like Proverbs. King Solomon, who was given clear instruction from God as the king of Israel, in light of God's promise to his father, David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that a king from the line of David would one day be seated on that throne forever. That Solomon was ultimately unfaithful to God. We see this in a few ways. Firstly, in the context of marriage. Have a look and go back to chapter 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So King Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines, and they were foreign women who worshipped foreign gods. This is something God explicitly told his people not to do. Back in Exodus 34, when, when Moses was making a, God was making a renewed covenant with Moses, the reason given for this instruction wasn't about ethnicity or race. It was the fact that they weren't God's people and that they worshipped false gods. And so if God's people of Israel united with them in marriage, they would be led astray. Uh, have a look again in verse, halfway through verse 2, have a look again. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And what happened? Big surprise, end of verse 3, and his wives turned away his heart. So exactly what God said would happen, did happen. It's not a surprising outcome. This is about as surprising as when we tell our kids not to jump on the trampoline straight after dinner because they'll make themselves sick. And they say, no, we won't. And then they jump on the trampoline and make themselves sick. Right? Which means Solomon's behavior, it's not just disobedient, it's also foolish. How, How foolish to think that you're committed to God, but then be yoked to literally hundreds of women who aren't committed to God and worship false gods. 
How are you telling yourself that you're committed to God at that point? The same Solomon who had a reputation all over the known world for his wisdom is the Solomon who decided to disobey God and do something incredibly foolish. The same Solomon through whom God gave us the book of Proverbs. This is significant for a bunch of reasons, partly because it helps us learn some important things about wisdom in general. But wisdom and maturity, they're not the same thing as knowledge, right? They're not always like knowledge. With knowledge, you know, you'll generally speaking accumulate more of it as you get older, okay? Sure, you might not remember some of the specific things that you learned when you were younger or when you were in school or something like that, but overall, you generally grow in knowledge, quantifiably, all right? But when it comes to wisdom and maturity, it's not always that simple. Solomon himself told us in Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is fearing God. The beginning of wisdom is fearing God. That's where it starts. If you don't have that fundamental appreciation of the creator of our world, you don't have the fundamental context to have real wisdom about the world that he made. Everything needs to be understood in light of God. Which means, the less we fear God, the less we have the capacity to see things with real wisdom. Just like power can corrupt someone's character and erode their morals, wisdom and maturity can be eroded as well. Sure, there's a natural potential to grow in wisdom and maturity as we grow older with life experience, but it's not assured It's dependent on our relationship with God. Solomon regressed in his wisdom. It doesn't matter that he once had the wisdom. He fell into foolishness. He was tempted, he was enticed away, and he became unfaithful to God through his disobedience with marriage. We should be obedient and wise when it comes to marriage and relationships as well. Now, Many Christians have been married to someone who isn't a believer, and that was the case for my mum for quite some time as well. There are lots of reasons for this. I mean, someone, um, uh, sometimes a person comes to Christ after they're already married and their their spouse isn't also a believer. Um, Other times, two people professing to be Christians get married and, and later on one of them walks away from the faith. No matter the reason, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that in those situations we should honor the marriage and use the opportunity to point them to Christ. But he also reminds us of those who aren't married, how crucial it is that we only pursue marriage with someone who also follows Jesus. And that that principle in marriage naturally means it's also unwise to, to date someone who isn't a Christian. We shouldn't assume that someone will just eventually change or that we'll be able to make someone change. That's not fair to the other person or you. And it's also dangerous for our relationship with God. Don't make Solomon's mistake with marriage. But Solomon's problem with marriage was just the start because we know that his marriage to these women wasn't just disobedient in itself, it led to further disobedience in him turning to the false gods of these foreign women. So secondly, Solomon was unfaithful to God in idolatry. Have a look at verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. 
Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So not only was Solomon not following God in particular ways, but he began actively, intentionally following other gods. It was evil in the sight of the Lord. The same Solomon who built the first temple for Yahweh, God of Israel, in Jerusalem, built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moak, the abomination of the Ammonites. It's kind of astounding, isn't it? That you can go from something like that to something like that. And yet, even though we might not be bowing down to statues, there are plenty of things we can find ourselves centering our lives around instead of God. Idolatry is an issue for us too, perhaps even more dangerously in that it's not always as obvious. Worshipping a false god is explicitly wrong, but having a job isn't until that job consumes you. At our latest men's brekkie in September, we had a look at the topic of idolatry and some of the common idols that men can struggle with. But of course, women have idols as well, and often they're the same ones. Family, marriage, work, hobbies, kids, comfort, status, money, the list goes on. Those are all great blessings from God to be enjoyed. They're important gifts from God, but they aren't God. Anything we can feel tempted to make more important to us than God is just something that God made. Their creation, God is creator. Don't make Solomon's mistake with idolatry. And it doesn't end there for Solomon either. By turning to other false gods, that unsurprisingly means that he had turned away entirely from that one true God. Thirdly, Solomon was unfaithful to God in turning away from God altogether. Have a look at verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant." So Solomon turned his heart away from the Lord. God said, you have been unfaithful to my covenant. Now there's, there's some debate around whether Solomon died as a believer or unbeliever, like you're in a relationship with God or fallen away from God. Um, if you have a look at verse 41, the end of the chapter summarizes the end of Solomon's life like this. Verse 41, now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So just quick heads up. The book of the Acts of Solomon isn't a part of scripture and it's a lost document we don't have. But really the point here is that there isn't an explicit declaration of whether Solomon repented and where his heart was in his final moments. But what I I do want to say is that either way, The thing to note here is that either is possible. Either is actually possible. Or to put it more directly, it's possible that the same Solomon through whom God gave us the book of Proverbs ultimately died out of relationship with God. And this might sound bizarre because many of us know through Christ that we can have a real assurance of salvation. God makes a promise to those he predestines and saves. You know, often the sense is a real Christian can't fall away. So let's, let's press into this for a minute, right? Firstly, 
we've got to remember that this is a different time in salvation history. Okay? This is the Old Testament before Jesus. And God's Holy Spirit came upon people differently at that time. Okay? So throughout the Old Testament, we see God's Spirit uh, come and dwell in people for a time. All right? You might recall examples of that language of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon someone uh, in a particular moment in order for something to happen. For particular moments or seasons, it would come and go in people. And that was the whole reason they had the temple, right? Because God's dwelling place with his people was actually in the holies of holies in the temple. It wasn't until actually after Jesus had died and risen again that things changed. The moment that Jesus died, the curtain in the temple that guarded the Holy of Holies was ripped in half. And later on at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in God's people in an entirely new way. And our bodies became the temple where God came to dwell in each of us. An incredible thing that we can so easily take for granted, isn't it? But secondly, even today, on the other side of the cross, we need to be careful about falling away. Um, Come with me to Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Um, We will go back to 1 Kings later, but it's worth going to Hebrews because we'll be in Hebrews for a little bit as well. So come to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and I'll read from verse 4. Verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So this talks about people who have fallen away, but then come down to verse 9. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So just after acknowledging people who have fallen away, the author of Hebrews says he wants readers to have full assurance of hope until the end, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So do we have full assurance of hope, or can we fall away? Which is it? We know that God keeps his promises. And we see an incredible promise uh, in Ephesians 1. I'll put it up on the screen for you to save you flicking there. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So those who truly repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our salvation as co-heirs with Christ. Guaranteeing. Nothing comes between us and God as he dwells in us by his Spirit. And yet, God warns us. And this actually makes more sense the more you think about it, as you think about how God works in us by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes us and grows us and works through us and holds on to us. But a lot of the time, he does that through his word. 
his living and active word, which is God himself speaking to us. For those with God's Holy Spirit, God's warning in Scripture, like in Hebrews 6, to not fall away, is part of how he works in us to never fall away. It's actually part of how he's holding on to us as he works in us through his word and we respond to that with the Spirit. Those who don't have God's Spirit don't have that assurance. Those with God's Spirit will read that warning and be shaped by it. So it's not actually the case that God's people can't fall away. It's that God's people won't fall away. Not that they can't, but that they won't. Because God won't let them. By his word, as he warns us, and by his Holy Spirit, which dwells in us to hear and respond to his word. See the difference? Now, it would be super convenient, wouldn't it, if we could just like see the Holy Spirit and like anyone with the Holy Spirit just had like a radioactive glow or something, all right? Um, it would also be really weird and awkward, so God knows what he's doing. Um, but the point is, we don't know where others stand with God in the way that God obviously knows, right? But when we see people fall away, that's usually an indicator that they didn't ever truly have the Holy Spirit in the same way that Paul was talking about in Ephesians. So what do we do with this? The application of that promise of the Holy Spirit isn't to take your salvation for granted because even though a person with the Holy Spirit won't fall away, the whole point is that a mark of the person having the Holy Spirit is that they will take that warning seriously and continually draw closer to God in repentance and faith for their whole life. That's what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit. That's what you see when God is letting, not letting go of someone. So guard your faith. Read God's word. Continue repenting and trusting Jesus and know that by trusting in Jesus, you have absolute, guaranteed, unshakable assurance of your salvation. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have that assurance. Before we move on, let's read um, the very next verses in Hebrews right after this warning of falling away. Um, so Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Because it reminds us of God's promised hope and his faithfulness to all of his promise. So as I read, can you guys have a look, see how many different ways you see God's faithful character and how he's faithful to promises in the language it's used. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. This is just after that promise of that, that warning of falling away. Now this language of God's faithfulness and promise. <clears throat> verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God promises hope in Jesus Christ and God keeps his promises. It's a sure hope, guaranteed by his Holy Spirit, that even though a person could fall away, they won't because the Holy Spirit won't let them. It's impossible for God to lie. This is a sure and steadfast anchor. And this faithfulness of God, it stands in stark contrast to Solomon's unfaithfulness. Solomon was an unfaithful king 
God is the faithful king. Go back to 1 Kings now, 1 Kings chapter 11, and go to verse 11. <clears throat> 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 11. Solomon was an unfaithful king, but God is the faithful king. Have a look at this. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So even though Solomon didn't keep the covenant, God still kept his promise to Solomon's father, David. Now, if you're unfamiliar... God made a promise to David, recorded back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so earlier on, the promise of the Messiah, the Christ, right? That someone from David's line, one of his descendants, and therefore Solomon's line, would sit on the throne as king forever, forever. Messiah is Hebrew for God's chosen or anointed, and Christ is the same thing but in Greek, okay? Now, of course, that promise of a chosen anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ, who would sit on the throne forever, would be fulfilled in Jesus. God is righteously angry and judges Solomon's unfaithfulness by tearing away most of the kingdom of Israel from him, but he's also gracious. He's gracious in not, he's gracious in not doing it in Solomon's lifetime because he's David's son. And he's also gracious to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who would be the next king, as God graciously leaves Rehoboam with another tribe to keep his promise to David and his chosen people. So a generation later, when ten tribes left the tribe of Judah, one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, remained with Judah. And of course, he was faithful and gracious in ultimately keeping that promise to David in Jesus. In spite of our sin, in spite of our unfaithfulness, God is faithful to us. So friends, we can walk away from God, but God never walks away from us. If he has put his Holy Spirit in you, he's never letting go. So keep trusting him, because as long as you're trusting him, you're showing that you have his Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and nothing can get in the way of that. Um, Come with me to Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 31. This is um, a really powerful passage, probably it might be familiar for many of you, as we see God's promise in never letting go and the significance and the assurance of salvation we have how unshakable it is. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
even if our faith is the size of a mustard seed, the strength of faith doesn't come from the faith itself, but the strength of whatever our faith is placed in. And our faith is in God, in a God who is all-powerful, all-good, and who has promised his people that nothing will ever separate them from him. Our faithful king. But let's keep looking at 1 Kings, though, because we don't just see an unfaithful king here, we see an unfaithful nation as well, the unfaithful people. 1 Kings, this time we're going to go to chapter 12, all right? And this is, um, yeah, we'll we'll kind of stay in chapter 12 as we um, finish things up. The unfaithful people, 1 Kings, chapter 12, I'm going to read from verse 12, and this is actually one of the most significant moments in Old Testament history, so good to track with. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him earnestly to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So the kingdom of Israel is divided. This is significant, and you'll see the the fallout from this in future weeks as we keep working through this series. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, foolishly ignores the counsel of the more experienced older advisors, and instead he listens to his younger peers and friends. And instead of relenting in the harshness that some felt under his father Solomon's rule, he decides to just go tenfold, pushes even harder, and decides to be harsher. But interestingly, guys, and this is what I think a lot of people miss, it's the foolishness of the rest of Israel that's actually the most devastating here. That when ten tribes abandon King Rehoboam and therefore abandon the king that God has chosen. When life gets harder under the reign of Rehoboam, who clearly isn't a good king, God's people lose their trust in God. When they are faced with adversity they no longer hold on to the promise and the covenant they shared with God. God has made a covenant with Abraham and then with Moses and then with David, and that covenant with David has extended to all Israel under the king from David's line. But in verse 16, they say, well, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance of the son of Jesse, except they did. All tribes who followed God's chosen king were recipients of God's promise, not just the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, but in the face of adversity, they lost their faith in God's promise. They chose short-term relief, but they walked away from a promise that spans eternity. We can learn from this. There are lots of things that can erode our trust in God and lead to unfaithfulness toward God. Sometimes comfort 
erodes our trust in God. Because if we feel like we've got everything that we want and need, then maybe we don't really need God anymore. Maybe I don't need to, to trust in him or rely on him. In this case, it was the opposite. It was suffering and adversity which eroded their trust in God. If God's promise relates to a king from the line of David, then why is following these kings so hard? Maybe God doesn't know what he's doing after all. Following Jeroboam would be way easier. I'm out. I'm taking the easy road. I don't trust that God's way is the best way. We need to remember that being faithful to God means trusting him even in adversity and in the face of injustice. But despite Israel being an unfaithful people, God is still faithful to his people. He says back in verse 11, sorry, chapter 11, verse 34, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. This is to Jeroboam. Yet to Solomon's son Rehoboam I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. This is Jeroboam. And if you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So God is merciful. He even gives Jeroboam, who is splitting away from God's chosen king, power and material blessings if he obeys God. He judged the offspring of David for Solomon's unfaithfulness, but not forever. Even when ten tribes walked away from God's promise of the Messiah, God kept his promise for the tribes who remained. We're unfaithful by nature. God is faithful by nature. God keeps his promise, and we can trust him in the face of adversity. But... Before I finish up, there's something worth clarifying here, I reckon, when we're thinking about trusting God and his promises. God keeps his promises, but don't invent promises. Sometimes we can invent promises on God's behalf and then like hold him accountable to keep those promises. Have you ever caught yourself doing that before? You know, sometimes we just assume that God is going to resolve something, that he'll bring justice to a person or a situation that he'll heal us or someone we know from a significant illness, that he'll never let the awful things that we hear about on the news happen to our family, that we'll find the husband or wife that we want or that we'll have the kids that we want, that we'll have the job and career that we want, that we'll never lose the financial security that we have, that we'll get the exam results we need, and on it goes. God hasn't made those promises to us in his word. God promised Abraham and Sarah that in spite of their history of infertility, that they would still have children. But that's not a promise for all of God's people experiencing infertility. God promised Moses that he would lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. But that's not a promise for all of God's people experiencing slavery or oppression. Don't get me wrong. Those examples of God's promises show us his character and the kind of God he is, that he does do things like that for his people. But we can't confuse that with inventing promises about specific situations in our own lives when we truly don't know what the outcome will be. If we invent, invent promises, then we risk resenting God for breaking promises that he never actually made. We re- resent God because we weren't healed. 
or our marriage didn't survive, or we lost our house, or we struggled with infertility. I recognise what I'm saying is confronting and painful for a lot of us, but if it helps us come back to remember the true promises that God has made to us, then it's worth it. To put it simply, when we're saying we're trusting God in adversity, that doesn't mean that we're trusting God will make the adversity go away. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's often closer to the opposite, that we'll trust God even if it doesn't go away. To bring it back to 1 Kings, God didn't promise that um, if you trust me and just keep holding on, then eventually Rehoboam will change and become a better king. You've just got to trust me. He didn't change. And as we'll see, continue to see in Kings 1 and 2 Kings, lots of rotten kings will come and go. What God did promise is that one day there would be a king from the line of David who would be perfect and who would sit on the throne forever, and we know that that's Jesus. And so he was calling his people to stay with that line of David, even through the adversity of cruel and oppressive kings. Not because it would be easier, but in spite of the fact that it would be harder. So to finish up, I'm going to read a passage from Acts. If you can come with me to Acts 13, and this is we're just going to read this and pray. Go to Acts chapter 13. This passage, I think, is helpful because it kind of gives like a pretty concise overview of God's faithfulness to his people throughout salvation history. Acts chapter 13, um, pretty helpful, just some, some big highlights. Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read from verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and those who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their, land in the, in their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found date in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Now go down to verse 32. Verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by everyone who believes is by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Solomon was an unfaithful king. God is a faithful king. We are untrusting and unfaithful by nature, but God is faithful by nature. God's promise to the coming of the, to David of the coming Christ is a promise to all of us. 
that Jesus Christ will sit on the throne forever, never seeing corruption, and if you believe in him, you will be forgiven, redeemed, and spend eternity with God as his children and co-heirs with Christ. So trust in that promise. When life is comfortable, keep trusting it. When life is hard, keep trusting it. Keep trusting in Jesus. I'm going to pray. Dear God, we are sorry for our sin. We are sorry for when we struggle to trust you, for when we make other things the gods of our lives instead of you, for when we doubt you and think we know a better way than you. We are sorry for our unfaithfulness. Please forgive us. Thank you that you are a faithful king. Thank you that while we are unfaithful by nature, you are faithful by nature, that it is impossible for you to lie, that you keep your promises, and that you have made the most incredible promise to us in Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Please help all of us here to trust in that promise for all our days. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.